Welcome to this week's episode of Questions You Didn't Ask. We are so excited to collaborate with the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA to explore advancing accurate representation and research. We are speaking with Dr. Carla Rodriguez Watson, Dr. Nadine Barrett, and Dr. Alicia Clary to learn more about how diversity and equity in research is vital to effective cures and how it leads to better patient advocacy and health outcomes. Let's continue the conversation. So thank you all for just a wonderful conversation. I mean, we've explored ethics, different strategies around that. We have also explored this concept of intersectionality. And one thing that I want to do is just kind of keep in in mind for our audience that this discussion is all about the United States of America, is about domestic research and our our homegrown healthcare system here in in the U.S. Um, Conversations about race, ethnicity, intersectionality, accurate representation and research get more and more complex as you make it a, a global conversation. But I do want to share that we are talking about our domestic research and how we are trying to advance this here in the U.S., And with that being said, we're also going to talk about what's called the social determinants of health. Some people don't even like using the term determinant. They call it instead the social drivers of health. So they will call it social drivers of health. And for short, because we love acronyms, you'll hear people saying things like S-D-O-H. And that is just a way of saying that there are a lot of contextual factors in our lives that shape our health, right? That help to determine our health, that help to drive our health. And so what are those things? Those things are housing. Those things are education, income, and wealth, which are two different things. It is also things related to our environment. It is also things related to safety, and a variety of other things that are a part of our social and contextual makeup. In my experience, these social determinants of health can help or hinder a person in terms of their ability to access health care. Now, when we talk about real-world evidence and real-world data, that means that the social determinants of health can also influence how we obtain or advance accurate representation and research. In the ways that we interact with our healthcare system and our ability to even get to a healthcare system and which way in which we obtain healthcare, is it at an urgent care? Is it at emergency department? Is it your primary care physician? Is it a natural healer? How are you engaging in healthcare is oftentimes shaped by these different social determinants of health. One social determinant of health that I didn't mention is transportation. So I'm sure that you can imagine how this might either help or hinder how we are able to advance accurate representation and research. So I'm going to turn to Nadine and ask that you lead us in maybe sharing with us how you've accounted for these different things or how you've seen how they help or hinder people's access. And then, of course, Alicia, jump in as you see fit. 
and specifically how um, the social determinants of health or drivers of health impact? Yes, impact um, how we access healthcare and then how that influences research. So one of the things that I'm thinking about is especially, so one of the things that had come to my mind was related to how, you know, your identity, which we talked a lot about, as well as your social drivers of health. So if you're a white affluent male, right, you probably have a lot more power in the way in which you control or determine your time. This is an assumption as opposed to a person who is poor, living in a rural community, African-American or Latino, how those different drivers, if you don't have transportation, how, how does that influence, again, the um, statement that we made earlier about those closest to the problem are closest to the solution? Okay, that helps a lot. So yeah, I think, you know, when we think about access to clinical research and trials, I kind of think about it in two different and related ways. Um, sometimes in this context of social de- determinants of health specifically. So one thing is that we look at cost, right? Transportation, scheduling, availability, proximity, all of these factors that we look at in terms of impact in terms of people being able to get access to participate in clinical research and trials. And so we also use those same factors that impact or determine one's ability to access healthcare. And we won't go into the context around quality healthcare. We're just talking about access to healthcare, not quality necessarily, although that's ideally what we want everyone to have. I think that from the clinical trial standpoint in particular, it's, it's, there's like this one layer that we tend to not acknowledge or know is that oftentimes people can participate in clinical research and trials because, and, and, and they don't because they're not asked or not engaged, right? So there's a lot of studies that show that. I think what's really interesting and compelling to me is that even if we take out the people who are out in the community, the broad and the broad representation that we should have in our clinical research studies and trials, when we simply look at the people who are coming into our clinics, when you look across the health systems, even that is not reflective of the demographics of participation in trials, if that makes sense. So if someone has made it into the clinic and they're getting care, they're getting conversation, they're having a discussion around there, and I'm not talking about the emergency room here, I'm talking about actual coming Mm -hmm. in, for appointments, right? Doctor mm-hmm. appointments. If people are coming in already into the clinics, that means that they have already figured out the transportation part. That's why mm-hmm. they're there. They've addressed childcare, which is another thing people talk about um, mm-hmm. in order for them to be there. They, although it may have been challenging, they figured out how to get there, even with managing a schedule in their job. Mm-hmm. They've even managed to get there based on where they live, right? And how they got there. And when we look then at the demographics of those patients that make it into the clinics, it still doesn't reflect the representation in our studies for the people Mm. that actually made it in there. So so I do think, and that doesn't mean that they don't have the social determinants of health, some of the challenges that that, that negatively impact access to quality care. So I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that they've made it here into Mm -hmm. our clinics, into our hospitals. And when we look at the demographics, they are still not represented across disease areas in our clinical research and trials. Mm-hmm. So just as a first layer, before we even go deeply into SDOH, there's a problem right there alone that we need to do better. 
at least for those who are here and the demographics there. For, now that doesn't, of course, meet the goals that one should be truly accomplishing as it relates to the representation. So adequate, broad representation of clinical trials, recognizing also that the representation should look like the, the burden of that disease or the burden of disease in the case of prostate cancer, for example, the number of black men that have black men are more likely to have prostate cancer compared to their white counterparts and die from it. We also then recognize that that overrepresentation carrying the greater burden should also mean that that burden should be represented in that diversity plan, right? That that mm-hmm. overburden for black men. Right. And it's the same thing for breast cancer and, and kidney disease, et cetera. So the short version to, uh, uh, I guess what I was saying short is that the social determinants of health intersect significantly around housing, jobs, environment, education, all of those factors. And at minimum, we and not this is not a goal, but at minimum, we're not even meeting the basic goal of those who are making mm-hmm. it into our systems. Then we take into consideration the social determinants of health, and that adds just another layer then of why we don't have diversity in our trials. But we also recognize and note that those two factors create pet barriers But the other big barrier that we all know is the implicit biases that exist, that people are not being asked. This study that Mm -hmm. I've done and others have done here in California and in New York, where we clearly saw that people of color, particularly Black and Latino, Latinx populations, were most certainly interested in wanting to know more about clinical trials, but they had never been asked but they would mm-hmm. certainly wanted to, to be engaged. The other part is that the more engagement that happens, community engagement that happens with clinics and academic health centers, the more that trust will, has already started to build. And so there are opportunities to engage our communities, our sites in clinical research and trials so that we're also maximizing the impact of the community resources that are there that can also mm-hmm. help in addressing the social determinants of health. But I'm also a big advocate of and not asking people to be a part of a trial per se, and mm-hmm. they don't even have access to good quality healthcare. <laughs> that that Amen. that to me for their for their needs. But I guess that's my my key big overarching points around it in terms of participation in trials and social determinants of health is that there's a basic number that we should be we, we should at least be meeting based on who's making it into our clinics. We're not doing that, but we need to do better by making sure we have adequate and broad representation. And that requires a lot of things, including partnering with communities, knowing what community resources are there and our health systems being very clear of what charity care looks like. Mm. Because I think that's another thing across mm-hmm. health systems. I go around all these different health systems and no one seems to have a, very, very few tend to have a very clear understanding of how their charity care system actually works. Mm. Um, but now we also have some policies with Medicaid expanding to allow uh, access to clinical trials. So policies making a part of that as well. But I'll stop there. I know we could say a lot more, uh, but I think that those are the two levels that we need to really start honing in on is what are we not doing for the people that are already in our systems and that are present and that are here in front of us? And then two, what do we need to do to ensure that we are addressing the social determinants of health for the broader population that we've not even really fully engaged yet in the clinical mm-hmm. research space? If I can just, you know, I'd first start by echoing much of what Nadine said, but I I would add that I think about one foundational question, and that is, how can we make it easier for everyone to meaningfully participate in healthcare, meaningfully participate and access healthcare and trials? 
Um, yes. And, you know, we have all of these tools at our disposal, but are we really understanding the barriers to accessing healthcare, the mm -hmm. barriers to accessing trials and bringing these solutions to bear on these barriers? Things as simple as providing folks with meal vouchers, providing folks with transportation vouchers, mm -hmm. but also really thinking about how we can leverage technology for things as simple as remote monitoring. So many mm -hmm. people have pedometers on their phone and they have ways to connect with their provider and to provide data via their phone and their smartwatches and things like that. But also I'd really like to see us moving towards like simplifying consent forms and simplifying data collection forms and, and simplifying collection forms at, for clinical care as well as research. We know that, you know, much of this as it relates to consent in particular, but other aspects of data collection really unfold as a part of a conversation as, and as a part of a process. So, so thinking about making the most of the conversation and the process and reducing the burden of participation via data collection. Great, great point. Yeah, I just wanted to pick that up. And again, what Alicia said, and I'm going to beat the drum again of in terms of making care more accessible through whether it is in the remote monitoring or even these home health care models, when we keep patients out of the hospital, but mm -hmm. we have the same and even better supports for them, it really does enable us to better capture their data their clinical mm -hmm. care data that feed the electronic health record that are so often used in real world data studies, even with regard to regulatory studies, more and more regulators are looking at these data as ways to continue to do real world safety surveillance. Mm -hmm. um, this was ex especially important in the pandemic, looking at the, mm -hmm. the performance of these vaccines and the diagnostics, particularly since they were issued under emergency use authorization, more and more there's a reliance on these real world data. And the more we make the care accessible, the more the data are available on diverse populations, the more that data can inform who is in need of what and get them included in clinical trials. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I, 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 go ahead. Well, I fully agree with, with both Alicia and Carla in terms of the practical methods, um, FFS collaborations, et cetera, that need to happen to address some of these social determinants of health. I do think also from the clinical standpoint, which is part of what you were asking too, um, Aisha, is that, you know, from a systems approach, I think it's really important that we start to normalize the conversation about clinical trials, participation within the healthcare setting. And so, and what I mean by that is, and again, this is partly addressed in social terms, but not really in terms of at least ensuring that people hear about clinical trials before they hear the words. So, so for example, if someone hears the day you have cancer, at that point, that ideally will not be the time that they'll be hearing for the first time about clinical research and trials and what they no. So, right. so it, it really should become a part of care if you will. And I'm not saying that it's the only care, but I am, and I, I recognize the distinction between the two, but oftentimes that's probably, that's often why our providers are not as comfortable sometimes in asking people to participate or partnering with researchers to do trials is because they, they have not been normalized to the culture of even asking or engaging or even being mm -hmm. aware of what clinical trials are. And so mm -hmm. therefore, of course, their patients aren't either. 
And so I think that part of it is normalizing that process. And so one strategy and that normalization needs to happen on both sides, the system and on the community side, really, right? And so one thing that we've done in the training that I do with Just Ask when I do the community version with the community is that really helping people to understand, like, if you know people, you are taking metformin, if you're taking medication for hypertension or for kidney disease or for any of those factors, you're actually a beneficiary of clinical trials already. Mm-hmm. You, you know, if you go to CVS and pick up just about any drug that you get from that drugstore or Walgreens, that you are a beneficiary of clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, people are like, what? People, the community is like, what are you, are you, wait, how does that work? And that's when you get to say it's research that got us there. That's why you're able to take it. And right. then all of a sudden, something that is such an abstract conversation in our communities mm-hmm. now becomes something that they can make a connection to because they're truly beneficiaries of it. So by the time, and, normalize, and then we normalize that conversation. So by the time they're going into their clinics, their doctor's offices, et cetera, they're able to actually have those conversations. They're actually, actually able to ask the provider about, so are there clinical trials for my diabetes? You know, are, are there studies that could be involved in that could be helpful for me or at least helpful to understand this disease better? So it shouldn't mm-hmm. be that people are hearing it as either when they get diagnosed or when, when it is a last option and then they're taught about a clinical trial, which, which are two big problems on a system side. So I'm saying that in complementary to what both Carla and Alicia are saying in terms of moving it out, the consent forms, the systems, but there's also some opportunities for us to normalize the culture within mm-hmm. our systems and in our communities around what clinical trials are and how they've played out historically in our experiences and currently in our care. Right. Right. I think that's great. Carla, did you have something else you wanted to add? To Nadine's point, just expanding upon that and being able to lift that burden a little bit from the provider perspective, I think, especially as we move trials outside of academic medical centers into the community, mm-hmm. there's going to be even greater need to leverage some of the technical digital methods for data collection that Alicia discussed, mm-hmm. remote monitoring, mm-hmm. leveraging electronic health records, because to support research, because we already know that these frontline providers are stressed. All of healthcare is stressed. Mm-hmm. And so we need to find ways to support these clinicians, the providers, everyone in the community setting so that we can engage more patients in, in clinical trials and in cap or just in capturing the information we need for clinical care. All right. Well, I mean, this is such an enlightening conversation and thorough discussion of these challenges that our healthcare system is facing, as well as the people in our community, our, our neighbors are facing as it relates to healthcare and how Nadine so eloquently put it, how clinical trials are a part of healthcare. And when we think about the fact that most people would, for altruistic reasons or other reasons, participate in clinical trials but they are just not asked. And some of the assumptions and biases that come into making that decision to not ask sometimes has to do with some of these social drivers of health. I don't think that this person would be able to adjust their, their, their work schedule. They already have a really hard time making it to their regularly scheduled you know, clinic appointments. I'm not sure if they would be able to understand or read education, you know, all of these different things or 
maybe this is this is a person that could be eligible, but they don't have health insurance and this clinical trial requires them to have certain things. I have been fortunate to be a part of developing different partnerships with healthcare systems with sector leaders outside of the healthcare industry in order to help leverage resources that the healthcare industry is not tasked to address, right? I've also seen amazing partnerships where healthcare systems have created different housing strategies for their community to improve community and population health. As we're thinking about how to make research accurately representative and to advance this, do you all have anything to say about the power of leveraging partnerships with, say, different businesses, healthcare leaders, or sector leaders outside of education, housing, real estate, whatever, that could transportation that could help bolster the infrastructure that allows our communities and our populations to be healthy. So one of the things we heard in RAISE were examples of partnering directly with community on research. So the Institute for eHealth Equity is an example that comes to mind where they're embedded in churches really to Mm -hmm. conduct research or to be able to engage these communities in, in clinical trials and plug them in. They have some direct relationships with, with some clinical trial networks as well as be able to, work with them to provide messaging on important health issues for their communities. Another example that comes to mind is through the NIH's All of Us project. They had some of their some of their partnerships in there included working directly with community organizations to better characterize the I'm just thinking of one example, the North African Middle Eastern community. So we had a presenter who worked with the NIH specifically to engage the the Middle Eastern community in in Michigan and understand you know what's kind of lacking in their ability to engage in research and they came up with this, this simple observation that they don't see themselves in these racial categories they don't see their needs being represented because Middle Easterners Arab Americans don't necessarily identify themselves as black or white and so they worked with them to create this, this Middle Eastern North African category that is now being considered as a response category to the race question in the, the initial proposed uh, changes to the Office of Management Budget racial categories. So that's being decided right now. And that really shows the power of community to make recommendations towards a federal program. And that's had lots of ripple effects for that community specifically. Now, if you go on to the community website and I can, I'll have to look up the name of that community website. They're actively recruiting people in their community to fill out census information, to be part of research, things that they had not done before. So you really, that's just some uh, examples of how I've seen partnership really broaden engage community engagement in research. Yeah, those are great examples, Carla. 
Yeah, I, I think the, the, the core element is really thinking about what partners are in our region to be able to make that local as well as the national impact and regional and national impact. So uh, another great example is we, there are a couple of them actually too, but we have a Hill partnership here, which is a partnership with us in Amy Zion. So it's the Duke, Amy, it's the Amy Zion Duke Hill partnership. And that partnership has been outstanding. It's 17 faith leaders who are responsible for churches and numerous churches across the state of North Carolina who are part of the Amy Zion denomination. And they partner with us on multiple projects and grants. They give insights into what needs to happen around our research and what we're doing. They give insights into consent forms, but they also are collaborators in, in the context of they are co-investigators on our grants. Uh, we hire them as consultants on our grants. And that's been a phenomenal partnership uh, where we're now addressing kidney disease in, in an incredible way. We're also addressing with Dr. Opeola Bisi. We're also addressing uh, equal space with Dr. Kimberly Johnson, where we're really addressing uh, end-of-life care, hospice and palliative care, and addressing the disparities in both those areas. So again, these are partnerships that are great. COVID-19 also opened up new partnerships where we now have the African-American Collaborative Task Force here, uh, which covers the state of North Carolina, as well as Latin 19, who covers the state of North Carolina as well, and is having also some national impact. And so now the, all of those groups provide education, webinars, resources, information about access to care and clinical research and trials. And so all three of those are partnerships that we have now with the community that's literally changing how we do things. I remember with COVID, they literally were the ones that by the census data, we knew one community that we need to go, needed to go to in order to address COVID-19 disparities in the Black community. But when we actually spoke with our partners, these partners I just mentioned, particularly Amy Zion Hill and App Plus, they're like, uh, the faith leaders are like, no, that's not where we need to be. They're not going to go there if you set up a clinic there. And they were right. They showed us where we needed to, and we had great outcomes. And that's how they partnered with the health system. And it's also how we then move forward to getting people enrolled in clinical trials. So again, there's a phenomenal examples of how that can happen. It really is about identifying and knowing who are the community coalitions and organizations, the local NAACP, uh, for example, uh, again, other great areas for us to move that forward, uh, such as Dr. Birch, who is a great longtime partner with us here at Duke, as well as now the, the um, incoming president for our local chapter for the state for the North Carolina NAACP. So I think that there's great opportunities there that we've learned from the community how to do it. And they actually tell us how to do it and what needs to be done, <laughs> as opposed to us thinking that we know the answers. Right. Thank you so much, Nadine. Yeah, we also heard from Latin 19 on RAISE and the great work that's going on there in, in North Carolina. Before I forget it, I wanted to tell everyone that the community organization that partnered with the NIH's All of Us is the Arab Community Center for Economic and Social Services, or ACCESS. And again, their participation with helping to better define racial categories is seeing the fruits of its labor in the new proposed categories for the Office of Management and Budget that includes a, one category for Middle Eastern North African descent. That's awesome. And, and Naisha, if I could respond to your question about multi-sector partnerships. Yes, ma'am. I'm excited. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there, there definitely needs to be some kind of investment that's made. These partnerships don't just materialize from nowhere, but as more health systems are, are becoming 
interested in and more responsible for providing health care and the associated outcomes for defined populations, I think you'll see increased interest in some of these multi-sector collaborations where a health system or an insurer may pair or partner with the community to build housing for people who are unhoused or may pair or partner with people who provide transportation to help facilitate greater access to clinics and to, to appointments and, and, and different doctor visits. So I think that, you know, as hospitals are responsible for outcomes for their patients, there will be greater interest paid, a greater attention paid to the social determinants of health and how those impact healthcare and healthcare outcomes. Yeah. And I really wanted us to talk about that because, you know, Nadine brought up the importance of recognizing that there's a lot of people who don't make it to the clinic, right? And then there's a lot of people who are in the clinic who are still not getting asked for a number of reasons. And some of them may be because the healthcare providers do understand their context, right? And the challenges that they have in regard to participating at their current level. And so I love the fact that each of you have spoken to different types of partnerships that help to ease the burden for those healthcare providers and the patient populations so that participation in healthcare and clinical trials is made easier, that we're working smarter with the community and not harder, not creating more barriers for them. So as we start to wrap this up, I want to ask my guests and my co-host, Carla Rodriguez, are there any questions that I didn't ask? I'm happy to start us off here, Naisha. Um, I think the one outstanding question for me from this conversation is really what's in it for me? What is the incentive for patients, for providers, for clinicians, for payers, for the healthcare system, for transportation folks, what is the incentive for them to meaningfully participate in and collaborate toward advancing inclusion in clinical research? Thanks for that. Any other questions that I didn't ask? One question the audience might be asking is, why is the FDA Foundation interested in health equity? Well, the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA is an independent nonprofit, but we were created by Congress to help the FDA advance its mission. And this area of health equity is a great example of where the foundation can help the FDA actually do more. That is, in strengthening health equity, it's, an, it's important for FDA for a number of reasons, but some of that work is probably best done outside of the agency. And if we don't get a diverse representative population engaged in clinical trials, that will affect labeling, coverage, and access to medical products, as well as patient acceptance. Carla, you're awesome. I'm so glad that you brought that in to help inform our audience about the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA's position on this topic and why it's so important for all of us to, um, to have these conversations and ask these questions. Nadine, Dr. Barrett, any no. questions that you can think of that are still burning? No, I think you really covered, I mean, this has been just an incredible conversation. Great to just hear about all the examples 
uh, that's out there. And it's just, I'm just really excited about what dissemination looks like and application across multiple spaces for us to be able to do this great work more broadly, for sure. I think the other thing is I'm president-elect right now for ACCC, which is the Association of Community Cancer Centers, which is a phenomenal organization focused on delivering great cancer care to everyone who needs it through organizations and partnerships. And so one of the things that we've been very focused on is actually increasing access and availability of clinical trials in areas that are traditionally not engaged, particularly in rural communities. So we have clinics, of course, that and, and academic health centers that are across the country, and we're really working together to continue this network in, in, in fostering opportunities to increase diversity in clinical trials. But we want to increase diversity in trials, but our goal is really for people to also get access to be able to participate in trials that could again be, as I mentioned at the beginning, life enhancing or life saving. So mm-hmm. I think that there's great opportunities on systems levels to do that, as well as specifically helping those sites to know what it means to do community engagement and what that happens. So ensuring that there's infrastructure support, but also engagement support and training in order for people to be able to do this work well and reach underserved minoritized populations in meaningful, equitable ways. Awesome. Awesome. Well, audience, as you can see, we could go on and on about this topic and many more. We have enjoyed each other and we hope that you have enjoyed us. Thank you. Thank you so much for answering all these questions. Thank you so much for posing these important questions. I mean, our audience is here to learn about health equity. They're excited about opportunities to learn more about research and healthcare. And there are so many questions and conversations that we could have surrounding these topics. And so as we continue to explore how we're going to advance health equity and create community-informed solutions, if you have some ideas for a new series, please contact Naisha Frey Consulting and our questions you didn't ask production team. And we'll be glad to work with you on a new series to explore some of these topics that were not yet asked. This has been a wonderful discussion and I cannot leave without giving a big thanks to my partners at the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA. Thank you, Leanne Browning, me behind the scenes for making this possible, along with my colleagues, Dr. Carla Rodriguez-Watson, as well as Dr. Alicia Slade-Clary and Dr. Nadine Barrett, and hopefully come up with some new solutions and share them with our audience. Continue to ask the questions and seek the answers. Have a great day.